0: Welcome to the sag Foundation's Conversations Podcast. The sag Foundation believes that contributions made to our culture by performing arts are not only valuable, but also essential. And so we provide free programming and services like this podcast to support them. If you'd like to learn more about the sag Foundation or access the full library of our conversations or make a donation to support this podcast, please visit sag That's www.sagafter.foundation dot foundation also subscribe to our youtube channel and follow us on twitter instagram and facebook at seg after found thanks and enjoy the conversation
1: please join me in giving a warm welcome to our moderator from variety janelle riley are you live streaming, you live streaming today oh okay Good afternoon, everyone. I just had to check with her to find out that we are live streaming today, so hi, everyone at home, too. Um, As the nice lady told you, my name is Janelle Riley. I'm the editor at Variety, and I'm so thrilled to welcome you to the SAG Foundation Conversation with Steve Carell. This is an actor who has created so many memorable characters and performances over the years, from things like The Office to The 40-Year-Old Virgin, and then seemed to segue effortlessly into dramatic roles like Little Miss Sunshine and Dan in Real Life. Uh, Still, I doubt even his biggest fans were prepared for his transformative, breathtaking work in Foxcatcher. Please welcome Steve Carell.
2: Hi. Thanks for having me. Thank you.
1: I always love actors giving it up for actors, and that doesn't always happen. That's really so That's nice. very nice. Thank you. You're probably used to that. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, well, congratulations again on a fantastic year. Thanks. Um, and because this is a SAG audience, I would like to start by asking, how did you
3: get your SAG card? Um, I was in John Hughes's last film uh, called Curly Sue, and, and I played Tessio the waiter,
2: <laughs> and
3: uh, I didn't have any lines. Um, Jim Belushi walked into. <laughs> he would walk into this restaurant, and the maitre d' would say, "Tessio," snap his finger, and I walked up. And that's how I got my sidecar. So no
1: lines, but you had a name. I did. I yes. and I
3: worked for three days for just that one little bit. Wow. That's when that's when they spent a lot of money on movies. Yeah, exactly. And now that would have taken about three yeah. minutes. So but that's yeah. why it was John Hughes' last movie. It was.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Took two oh, I didn't mean it like that. (laughs) I just meant it was a long shoe. You guys are morbid. (laughs) So I want to go back and uh, start at the beginning. Uh, I know you grew up uh, in Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. far away from the entertainment world. Uh, Yeah. You didn't have a family in the business or anything like that? I thought
3: you were going to say I didn't have a family. (laughs) It's a very sad story. (laughs) Grew up an orphan outside of Boston. (laughs) Uh no no one my uh my dad uh was an engineer my mom was a psychiatric nurse uh, my oldest brother uh is an architect then another engineer and then a landscape architect so yeah no one I, I definitely went, went a different way. So when you said you were interested in, in performing or being an
1: actor, I mean, were you sort of the black sheep of the family? Did they know what to do with that? Well, they
3: didn't, they didn't. None of us took it very seriously, including me. It was just something fun to do. It was never a, a potential career choice. I always... My parents sent me through private school, and they didn't have a lot of money, but they really... My mom worked nights, and... Uh, So they afforded me this great education. So I felt like I owed them something that sounded better than saying I was going to be an actor. Honestly, at that time, I thought that can't that's not a legitimate career choice in my Mm -hmm. head. I need to give her doctor or lawyer or something, you know, to, you know, to warrant all of this effort. And they're the ones who actually said, you should go for it. You really after college, they said, you have to just it's your life. Um, you have to do what's going to make you happy. Don't you know? You're you're on your own. Go for it. So, so I really uh, owe them that. So your parents actually encouraged you to be an actor. They did. Yeah, <laughs> they did. You know, because they knew that it's something I always enjoyed doing. And my I remember I sat down with my mom and dad because I was applying to law school, and I knew they knew my heart wasn't in it. And I remember they we made a list of all the things that I liked to do, like. Uh, Well, I played hockey growing up. You know, am I going to be a professional hockey player? Probably not. Um, And acting always came up. It was always like an extracurricular, something that I always did. I always had fun doing. And uh, so that was a reoccurring theme. And they said, you know what, just do that. Just at least give it a shot. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I moved to Chicago soon after that and started doing plays and then worked at Second City.
1: Now, did they know you loved acting because you did plays in high school? Oh or? yeah,
3: they. I mean, I started early, early on doing like silly things in class. I wasn't a class clown, but I liked to, I liked to be part of you know whatever sketch people were doing or whether whatever play was was being put on by the class.
1: Do you remember some of those early roles when you like you know had that moment on stage and realized <clears throat> I was James in James the
3: Huntsman. They actually wrote it for me in third grade. Really? Yeah, yeah. Mrs. Gage, who is the the head of the music department at my in third grade, there's a music department. Um, she wrote this this thing called James the Huntsman, and she cast me as James. So that, wow. was, that was pretty exciting. That From was her video. to Judd
1: Apatow, you have people writing know, things for you. I know. I like... know. I should
3: get the two of them together. Mrs. Gage. And... <laughs> um, yeah, but it's just something I always enjoyed doing. Something that was always fun.
1: And where? I know you were a radio DJ for oh, a while. Oh, God. Yeah, bad one.
3: <laughs> yeah, in college. Oh, it was college. Yeah. Okay. W-D-U-B. <laughs> it was 10 watts. It was a 10-watt radio station. It literally... The college was on a hill in Ohio, and the signal barely made it off the hill. I mean, it was... It, I, and I had the morning shift. I was... A college radio station, a 10-watt college radio station, and I had, like, the 5 to 7 a.m. shift. What college student is up at 5 in the morning? So I just started doing... I would do, like, calls to friends... And we do characters and things. Nobody was listening. Nobody heard a thing. But it was just, you know, just had free reign of this radio station.
1: And was it your sign-on name something like Sapphire Steve? Or? Sapphire Steve okay. Carell,
3: yeah. <laughs> and that was actually to, to gently mock the, the guy that I interned with who called himself Diamond Doug McKenney. Uh. So I, the first time he let me on the air and I said, this is Sapphire Steve Carell, interning for Diamond Doug McKenney." And he didn't really think that was that funny. But,
1: yeah. Did everyone take on jewel names after that? No, no, no. That was,
3: no. The, the jewel ended after that.
1: But you did keep the nickname. Not really. Not really, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and what sort of career were you imagining for yourself? Did you, you know, know it was
3: going to be in comedy, or did you think it would be a mix?
1: Did you think it would do theater? The, oh gosh, and this is going
3: to sound so well rehearsed because I've said this before, <laughs> but I, I honestly thought if I could make a living, and I didn't, I didn't have a master plan. I thought if I can make a living as an actor. Once I decided to do it, I thought if I can make a living doing it and potentially support a family, that was it. That was the that was the success. There was nothing beyond uh there was no bar set beyond that in my mind. Um and then when things, you know, things happened, and TV, I thought, I thought if I'm ever on a commercial, oh my god, that, that will be it. I will have completely made it if I ever am on a commercial. I really felt that way. And I did a, a McDonald's triple cheeseburger commercial. It's my first, and I know they've just started um, issuing them again. Oh, I was going to say, I don't they, even they remember the triple yeah, cheeseburger. It's, it's pretty special. <laughs> but, uh, and I remember the commercial, I had my two hands, and I had a cheeseburger, a triple cheeseburger in each hand. And there was a guy behind me doing the third hand and he had a, you know, so I had three arms and I was eating these triple cheeseburgers and I had to take a bite out of each one. And you know, new at McDonald's, triple cheeseburgers. And nobody told me about the whole spit bucket thing. And so for about five hours, I ate, I, I can't even... I must have eaten 10 or 15 wow. at least triple cheeseburgers. Um, and then they said, that after they saw I was getting green, they said, did you want a spit bucket? And I said, that would, what is that? I would if, if it's what I think it is. Um, so that, but then I remember I had fallen asleep in my apartment at about three in the morning. I thought I heard my voice that I was, I fell asleep on my couch and the TV was on and it was my triple cheeseburger commercial. And I woke up hearing my voice doing the triple cheeseburger commercial and I thought, this is it. I've hit the big time. <laughs> I really... After
1: shooting that, I don't know that I could ever eat at McDonald's again. Oh, I still love
3: McDonald's.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you just don't get the triple cheeseburger, mm-hmm. maybe.
3: Because <laughs> they stopped issuing it after a while. Um, not because of me. Okay. But <laughs> Are you sure? It's, it's a limited time. It's like the McRib.
1: <laughs> Which I've also never had.
3: Not, they're very good. That's not what I hear. Uh,
1: <laughs> and was it in college that you started to get involved in improv as well?
3: Yeah, I joined an improv group in college um, called Burpee's CD Theatrical Company at Denison University. And incidentally, it is the oldest college improv company really? in America. Yeah, it started the year before I came. So I was like the second... I was the first group they auditioned for it. Um, So yeah, I I got into it and I'd never done improv before that, but it was really fun. I mean, it's such a specific talent. When did you realize
1: that you had a gift for it?
3: I don't think I did. (laughs) I I, I really don't. The first time I tried it, I went to a high school summer institute for theater um, at Northwestern. Uh, I don't know if people are familiar with it, The the Cherubs. I don't know. It's, it's high schoolers from around the country go to Northwestern. And I took an improv class then, and it was the first time I ever tried it. And I remember every time I was on stage, I would just, my default was anger. <laughs> I would just, and I think it's pretty common when you first, because it's, it's very scary and frustrating and you don't know what to do. So I just got angry at people on stage and I remember for a whole semester all my scenes were me yelling at other people and it was mostly I think out of out of fear. Sure. And just not really no know, knowing where to go with it. So it wasn't, it, I don't think it was anything that necessarily came naturally but I kind of tried to learn Uh, how to do it a little bit along the way.
1: I know on The Office Michael Scott was a big fan of improv (laughs) and I I don't know that I would say his improvs were angry but he was always pulling a gun.
3: That's actually (laughs) that's based on a friend of mine. Oh is it really? Not. There was a guy at Second City who always used to pull a gun during scenes and And he knows it. And he'll laugh about it too. But we actually let him, a scene got into the show in Second City because we all agreed we're going to let Ron pull the gun and then we're going to let him kill all of us in the scene. And that's what the scene was. It was this guy who was just really frustrated uh, like a teacher and when you got the wrong answer he'd kill you. And, and it was sort of an inside joke like we're just going to give Ron his scene with the gun. He, he gets to kill everybody.
1: Did he get it out of his System after that, or did he keep pulling? No, guns? he still liked
3: to pull guns. <laughs> <and sandals. laughs> uh, now, did you discover Second City and specifically
1: move to Chicago for that,
3: or I? Well, it was part of the equation. I, when I was in college, the Second City touring company came by and did a performance, and I thought that looks like a lot of fun. Like that's that's what I would love to, you know, talk about sort of dream job. That yeah, I thought that was just touring around the country doing, doing sketches and improvising. And then what I love too is, and we did it too when I was in the touring company at Second City, you'd be in a college town and we we're all young and we'd say, hey, after the show, if anybody wants to meet us at the bar mm-hmm. and you drink for free all night because everybody from the audience goes and buys yeah. you drinks all night. Um, <laughs> So I learned that when I was in college. Like <laughs> that would have been a fun. That was it. Was fun. It was a really fun job. But that's it was part of the reason. I also, I didn't move to LA initially because it was a, I thought really intimidating, and I thought I'd just kind of get lost. And uh, and the same with New York. I I wanted a, a smaller pond. I just wanted to work. I wasn't looking to be discovered, um, and Chicago seemed a better fit because there's so much great theater, Steppenwolf, and at the time, Remains and Organic. There were a lot of, and Goodman, there are a lot of great theaters to work there too, so. That's did you ever did. work at any of them? I did, yeah, I worked at Remains and I worked at Organic um, and Goodman um, and, you know, and a bunch of a bunch of them in town, yeah.
1: And during this time, did you have to take survival jobs or were you always working as an actor?
3: Oh, no, I worked at Houlihan's restaurant <laughs> as a waiter um, and then the Hard Rock Cafe for a couple of years. Wow.
1: Gave you good um, background for Tessio, though.
3: It did. To, be, to be a waiter. It did. Oh, yeah. I nailed it because of, because of that. It's probably why I was hired. Because rarely can you find an actor who has waitering experience.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and while at Second City, you obviously met so many amazing people, worked with so many amazing people. Is it true Stephen Colbert was your understudy?
3: Yeah. Do you like to remind him of that? All the time. <laughs> He He's amazing. We just did a and A. I I went out. He and his wife are um, on the board of the Montclair Film Festival. So we got Ooh. together and I, I flew out and we did a and a Q&A, And it was so nice to kind of go back through because we've worked together a lot. We worked at Second City together and then we worked on the Dana Carvey show together. And then we worked on The Daily Show for a number of years together. So I feel like our careers are always intersecting with one another. And he's a really good friend i I don't know if if i've met anyone more intelligent more articulate and more talented than he is he's he is i think people are going to be really surprised when they see him um another another side of him on his new show
1: I mean, both you and John Stewart had amazing movies in the last year. John, yeah, yeah wrote and directed one. Fantastic. You obviously starred in. We well, starred in several films, but Foxcatcher. Um, does he ever feel sort of left out? You know, he's the slacker of the group. John
3: Stewart? No, no. Oh, <laughs> Stephen,
1: Stephen Colbert. Colbert. Yeah, I don't
3: think Stephen yeah. feels in any way. <laughs> I think Stephen is is a really important person in our culture, and I think that can be said of relatively few people and I I, and I remind him of that not that he needs reminding, but I I, You know, I'm really proud of him. I'm proud to have a friend uh, Who who does what he does and if he chose to he could you know, he could be in movies He could do I think he could do whatever he wanted to do when he understudied for me I played a baritone horn some people call it a euphonium in in this uh, show and he'd never played a brass instrument. And he, in a week, he learned how to play the baritone so he could understudy for me. So that's the kind of guy he is. He, he, he just approaches things. He even said, and this really surprised me, when we we're talking about his transition into this new show, he said, I'm really not a very political person. Yeah. He said, I just assumed this character and I learned as much as I could about what that character would know and how that character would feel. But for him to say he's not really a politically minded person was a bit mind blowing to me uh, because he is, you know, he's such a figure in that world. Um, he's he's a good man.
1: I actually saw him in Company.
3: Oh, um, I heard that was. Oh great. yeah,
1: he was fantastic. And there was a part of me that wanted his show to fail so that he could go on and have this great Broadway he could. <laughs> film career. See,
3: that's the kind <laughs> of talent he ha- he's a great actor. He's he's incredibly musically inclined. Um, you know what? Why isn't he here right now? Yes. Well he is actually!
1: <laughs> Welcome! Stephen Colbert! No. Stephen Colbert!
3: Surprise <laughs> guest! No, his ears are burning. I, he's, I, I'm just a big fan. And you know, it's nice to have friends like that.
1: Um, and one of the reasons I bring him up is because I know you guys did the Dana Carvey show together. Yeah. Which was um, so ahead of its time.
3: Um, That's what they say about failed things. <laughs> well, it, <laughs> when anything fails miserably, it was just ahead of its time. No, it, I
1: remember watching
3: it when it aired. <laughs> that was an unplanned
1: fit take. <laughs> I'm just so glad it wasn't me. Um, well, Actually, I've because I'm gonna start laughing, like the very first thing I think ever aired on the Dana Carter
3: show. I knew Carvey you were show. gonna bring that up. Yes. The very first sketch was Dana as Clinton. And this is when presidents were still revered by the public. <laughs> and he opened, he was doing like a press conference or something, he opened his shirt to reveal a prosthetic chest with eight nipples. <laughs> and I don't know if anyone ever saw this, and the nipples were functioning. They were, they had, they had tubes running to them. So he lactated. And to show that he was the most nurturing of all presidents, they put a bunch of Golden Retriever puppies on the table in front of him. And they went for it. And they were just sucking on his fake nipples. And that was the first image that America had for this show. And a... Apparently they watched, and we followed Home Improvement. Right. So, so, so they started with this incredible number, and they watched the number just go. <laughs> just, the, it, the show was basically over at that point. It was, it was done. It was incredibly fun. the The writing staff it was Robert Smigel, Louis C.K. was the head writer, Charlie Kaufman was a staff writer, Robert Carlock from Thirty Rock. I mean, it had. There were it was sort of a who's who of uh, of comedy writers and it failed, but it was fun. It was really fun. It was
1: ahead of its time. It was a good
3: experiment. Um,
1: But I I bring that up because I I love it and I always have to have that image of Clinton and the puppies. But um, because in a way that sort of led to your Daily Show job, from Mm -hmm. what I understand, because I know Stephen Colbert had brought you up and there was a producer who was trying to, she was like, what, what would
3: I see him from? Yeah, she, well, Stephen kind of threw my name in the hat because they were looking for more co- correspondence. And Stephen showed her a tape of the two of us doing this bit we came up with called Waiters Who Are Nauseated by Food, <laughs> which was based on my audition piece for the Dana Carvey show, which was a podiatrist who's nauseated by feet. <laughs> and a, the podiatrist was basically like, Oh, I see that you. Oh God! Ooh. And it was—it was, was a guy looking at a foot and trying to kind of maintain his uh, semblance of, of professionalism, but he just had a terrible gag reflex because he was grossed out. So that's what—that's what waiters who are nauseated by food was, and she loved it. Yeah. And Stephen often points to that as. Something that really sparked his career too. Really, like, yeah. That, that was, sketch. That sketch was kind of the, the yeah. A lot of things resulted from that silly sketch.
1: Again, from your experience as a waiter,
3: exactly. resulted. I owe it everything.
1: <laughs> you have thank you, hula hands. Yeah. Um, so I actually want to take a couple questions from the audience, um, and forgive me in advance if I mispronounce anyone's name. Um, is it Sata? Okay, uh, who or what inspired you to get into comedy, and did you ever do stand-up?
3: I never did stand-up. I I think I'd be terrible at stand-up. I don't, I don't think I have that. I just was in Palm Springs, and Chris Rock accepted <laughs> this award, and man, to watch someone like that control a crowd and just ha- have complete confidence, I, I just don't think that's you know that's my forte. Um, but I really respect it. I think it's I think it's admirable and and unique. Um, what like who inspired me? Yeah. Um, in terms of like a teacher.
2: Teacher or just maybe some comedic actor or something that made you just get inclined
3: into it. How I've told I've told this story before. I, I had a second grade teacher who complimented me on my rowing. In a, in a second grade. Seriously, we were doing a- Show uh, them like the
1: rowing, I saw it earlier, it's I, amazing. It's a, it was a
3: Pilgrims and Native Americans uh, Thanksgiving, and I was a Native American rowing my canoe toward the Pilgrim camp. And I was sitting in a school chair, and this wasn't for an audience or anything, this was just for the class. And I took my oar and I wrote it, I wrote it, and then I switched and I wrote it this way. <laughs> and I'll never forget, my teacher, Mr. Blackman, pointed that out and said, now had he just run on one side, he would have gone in a circle. And so he switched <laughs> to keep the canoe and it's something that I hadn't thought about. I, and it really, I, it struck a chord. I, I just, to have someone, and not that I lived this, this terrible life that no one gave me credit for anything before, but there was something very specific about that moment. And, and all the other kids in class, I remember it so distinctly. They were like, yeah, he did that. That was so cool. And to feel um, really special because of it, um, I I have to point to something like that. You know, those kind of supportive moments, I I think about that all the time with my kids. Um, And and I'm sure I try not to support them um, with things I don't want them to end up doing.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: so
1: you would never encourage their rowing?
3: No, no, no. Um, no, it's, I, I think it was, just, it was just an important moment. And, uh, but in terms of actors, boy, I look at the work of someone like Peter Sellers or Harold Lloyd, or I mean comedically, um, Jack Lemmon. Uh, you know, there, there are a lot of people who have influenced me in that way, um, both dramatically and, and comedically.
1: Um, so back to the Daily Show because yeah. we, we've gone two minutes without bringing up Stephen Colbert again. I know, but, <laughs> but uh, I understand he gave you some advice actually on joining the show because you weren't sure you were comfortable. I guess with he did.
3: The... He said you sort of have to. Uh... You have to. I wasn't. I wasn't comfortable because it it scared me. And at the time, the show was much more cruel and it went after people that didn't deserve uh, to be gone after it uh, was kind of shooting fish in a barrel so he he recommended that I one I assume a character and which I thought was really that it it can't be you you have to distance yourself from this or otherwise it's soul crushing and I I went one step further and I tried to make all the pieces I did at my at my character's expense rather than the people I was interviewing because um it's just a lot of those people didn't deserve to be mocked or humiliated. Some did. You know, there there were some bad people. There were some intolerant and racist and, and awful people that we came across on that show. And I didn't have a problem with that. But the people that were just, well, you know, and neither did Steven. Man, he really would go after people. But it was those people that were just eccentric that I didn't feel r- warranted that that kind of uh, scrutiny and and mockery. So it would always be at my character's expense and I would be the idiot. And, and so I, I think that was good advice to kind of turn it around and make it work morally uh, for yourself.
1: Uh, how would you sort of describe the character you created?
3: I always thought of him as a guy who was a national news reporter who had been demoted to this cable station
2: <laughs> and was, uh,
3: thought that he was better than, what he, than the material he was being given. But was trying to maintain his integrity through it all. That was kind of my idea.
1: And did you have that from the beginning? Do you remember? Yeah, the first that's sort of what I did? chose.
3: That's that's kind of what I chose yeah. going in. I didn't really label it, but that's yeah. what I had in my mind.
1: Do you remember the first uh, interviews or segments you did on the show?
3: The first one I did was a guy who thought Walt Disney um, had a, had built a subterranean lair at Disneyland. And was kidnapping children, and turning them into mind control. Through mind control, he's turning them into slaves, um, in this subterranean lair. So that was my first one. (laughs) And 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 again, you you walk away going, oh my god! Like how do we, how do we do this? Like this guy has no idea. And that's when the show was meaner.
2: Yeah.
3: um, Because it was this guy was clearly off, you know, he, he, was, he was ill, and you just kind of feel dirty, like what, what's funny about this? It's not, it's a, you know, it's just a sad thing. Um, so again, you try to just put it on yourself and make it as silly about what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Was
1: there ever a time, uh, thinking back, I, I can recall like some, some really seemingly dangerous situations that the correspondents would be in, mm-hmm. was, there, was there any time you were ever scared?
3: Um, no, well, a couple times, um, not really, you know, I, I never, I never did any, again, Steven got a couple that I remember he was doing one. He did a, what are called standups where you do, and this is Steve Carell reporting to you live from, you know, back to you in the studio. Those are standups. And Steven did one after he'd interviewed these white supremacists, supremacists. Um, he did one in front of a, uh, a burning cross oh, and, and he, what was it? I don't know. He, he made some crack and they were watching him do it. And it was one of these, get in the car, get in the car, get in the car. <laughs> and they, they had to, and they chased him, you know, they followed wow. him. So it was, yeah, there were some Vance DeGeneres was actually locked in a room. Um, <laughs> they went inside and, uh, they kept the crew outside. The producer and Vance were in were invited into this room, they locked the door behind them, and they said, so what, you think we're funny? You come here to make jokes about us? And so they basically suckered them down there. Wow. And, uh, because they wanted to make a point. It would, yeah, there were some times, not, no, not for me. I did, I did the Klingon speaker (laughs) convention, you know. (laughs) I was just thinking it was pretty smart of you to be, like, doing produce Pete while they're off
1: interviewing white supremacists.
3: Yeah, no, (laughs) I'll stay in studio and do produce Pete.
1: I actually, this may be a really stupid question, but I always wondered why Produce Pete. We all knew you as Steve Carell.
3: Well, the full title of it was Produce Pete Steve Carell. Really? That was part of the joke. It was I was Produce Pete Steve Carell. It didn't make any sense. It was ahead of its time. Exactly.
1: <laughs> uh, we have another audience question from um, Jack Scullard. Did I get that right? Okay. Um, I know you come from a strong improv background. How did you transition into scripted work? Um, did you have any training? And does improv help you with scripted work?
3: Did I have tra- in training in, in scripted? Like, yeah. I mean, I went. I, I have a degree in theater from from college. Um, a double major in history and theater because you know <laughs> history really pays <laughs> off. I actually <laughs> I actually saw in like a U.S. World Report they were they were categorizing the least the the least successful um majors to have and history was by far the like history majors make less money than any other pro- profession like if you get a degree in history it's that's the worst for for money making so i got i have that and theater so, so again my parents thanks for all of those Thanks for working nights for me, Mom. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I, I I studied acting, so I you know I did a lot of plays and I did Summer Stock and and sort of fell into the the improv and really fell into the comedy, because I I hadn't thought that was going to be my career path necessarily, but I it's just the, those are the things that I got cast in. Um, when I was in Chicago, I tended to get. The Triple Cheeseburger commercial, and and uh, you know I did, I took classes at Second City and did sketch shows and did musical comedies and and that sort of thing. Uh, um, so it was really by virtue of the things that I was I was cast to do. And improv is, it's a it, I think it's a really interesting tool to use for, and I think a helpful tool as well when you start going off and doing other things because even in Foxcatcher, we. Bennett, and I didn't expect this at all, I did not think that he would be this kind of director, but he encouraged it. He wanted, we'd start a day and he'd look at the script and say, I don't think this is working. Let's just improvise this scene. So we had to be prepared to improvise within those characters, um, which I hadn't anticipated, but was great because sometimes we'd use the improv just to get to the nut of what the scene was about. Um, sometimes we'd use the the things that we'd improvise. And sometimes they were just, sometimes they were a means to an end. Um, but I think it can be helpful if you can just not think of it as uh, trying to be funny. And that's, I, I taught at Second City too, and I, one of the things that I tried to teach was, it's hard to teach improv, but one of the things I tried to instill was don't let go of looking for jokes or trying to be funny or um, pre-thinking. You know, try to just remain in the moment, and I think that's that's helpful for any actor. Is to just you don't know where it's going. You don't. You know, you're just along for the ride. So. How long did you teach for? A um, couple years. Oh, really? I was I was doing main stage there. That's where I met my wife. She was in my class. So. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> Yeah, she I was the hot girl from Massachusetts at the back.
1: Also from Massachusetts. Yeah,
3: yeah. Oh, that was the deal sealer. Yeah. Like, wow, you're all of this and the holidays. We're going to be just right there. Visit your parents, visit my parents. This is perfect. No, it was it. Yeah, so and she was great and so funny and so beautiful and smart. Yeah.
1: I was saying this earlier, but I was a big fan of hers from when she was on Saturday Night Live. And I know you get asked this a lot, but I, I, I think people are surprised to hear you never auditioned for Saturday Night Live. I
3: never got called to audition. No, I never. Um, yeah, I was overlooked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, uh, but I got to host. That was pretty yeah, cool. That's probably better. That no, was fun. Actually. It was fun, but I got to see it. You know, when she was on SNL, she got cast on SNL a week before we got married. So we we went back we went on vac- we went on our honeymoon and then immediately from our honeymoon we moved to New York from Chicago so she could do that. And I was doing a, I was doing a play off Broadway that had been in Chicago that just coincided with her doing SNL so we were both doing stuff at the time. But I got to go, you know, and sit in the writers room when the show was going on and to see the workings of it and it is A machine Mm -hmm. that show is amazing to watch
1: and during this time when you were on the daily show you were you were doing lots of other work i know you were appearing on tv here and there um how are you at auditioning i'm gonna i'm gonna guess it's been a while since you've had to do it pretty
3: i'm pretty bad at it i was i was not i get really the i became better at auditioning once i had a child and i i will never forget it i because i put so much on it and i worried so much about whether I was doing it right or whether I was the person that they wanted. And I was always trying to outthink what they wanted or were expecting this person to be. And um, Nancy had Annie and about a week later, I got called out to uh, a callback for uh, the Julia Louis dreyfus yes. show called Watching Ellie. And I was on cloud nine and all I could think about was my new baby and my wife And I, I was like in this state of bliss when I auditioned and I nailed it because I just didn't give a shit. I was like, (laughs) I just wanted to get back to them. Yeah. And it, it suddenly everything had a different context. And, uh, and so I think I started auditioning better because I wasn't worried so much about figuring out what they wanted. I just did what I thought I should do and, and just committed to it and just, figured if, if I'm not right, then I'm not right, and I, I'm not going to worry about it. It's interesting being on the other side of it, too. For the first time, uh, when we did 40-Year-Old Virgin, to be it was the first time I was on the other side of the audition process to watch people come in and mm-hmm. read with them, and to see how some, how some people just absolutely nail it, and how other people, you know by the, just walking in the door, that they're in trouble. and And it's, It's almost like dating, I think. It's, if there is a sense of, if there is an allure to that person and a sense of like, you want me more than I need you, that's always more attractive. I I really think that's true. But if there's this, Oh, I just I want this job and I, I will do anything to get it. Please, please love me. There's something kind of off-putting, like, I don't want to love you. <laughs> I no, you have to come on. Give me some mystery. Um, but when people came in and were prepared, but were also just confident without being cocky, um, and just did it like thank you and and were professional and and came in and and did their job and and didn't I don't know. didn't Didn't work too hard for it. I just it was interesting to watch, and it's something that I thought about afterward. Like, okay, that's I have to clock that next time I go in.
1: But obviously, you care, or you wouldn't be there. So, how do you sort of fake that? I guess confidence, or not uh, well, you caring? care,
3: and everybody, everyone wants the part. I mean, obviously, you wouldn't be in there unless you you wanted to do it. Um, but there is a there's a certain um, unfortunately, there's a certain desperation that comes off. That you want to feel like whoever you're casting is going to, on the day, show up and and nail it, just like they're nailing it here. You want you want to have the confidence in them, and uh, and I think that's part of it because it's you know it's there's there's a lot of money involved and you can't you don't have a lot of second chances and you just want to be certain that they're you know that they feel good about themselves, and that they're not gonna kind of fold. Um, and I, I was just a, I was a bad, I was exactly that. I was the one who really wanted it, but I, I wasn't cool about it at all, or didn't, I didn't have self confidence about it. Going Did down. you have any disastrous auditions or uh, many?
2: <laughs> Mostly.
3: <laughs> I remember I auditioned for a Fox show, and it was one audition I felt like, you know what? I actually think that. That might have gone pretty well i i felt good about it and i called my agent later and i said any feedback and she said they hated you like she was so honest she's like like they made a point to tell me that they really they really really didn't like you at all and and i thought i have to re-examine my my self-evaluation technique Oh, can I tell you my actor joke? This is the only joke I've ever actually written. Um, It's a knock-knock joke. Not a knock-knock joke. It's a um, screw-in-the-light-bulb joke. Um, How many actors does it take to screw in a light bulb? How many? Six. One to screw in the light bulb and five to say, why wasn't I submitted on that?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Only five? You're
3: being generous.
1: (laughs) Uh, you mentioned watching Ellie, which was a show ahead of its time.
3: Yep, bomb, um. bomb, another bomb. <laughs> no, but
1: it really was. It was a real-time concept. I mean, it had this crazy cast, Peter Stomari, and you, and...
3: Yeah, and Don Lake, and, and she is just... It was the one failed sitcom that Julie louis dreyfus ever did, <laughs> right. and I was a part of it. <laughs> she is so great. Yeah. I am I'm a huge fan of hers. Uh, yeah, I, the, the premise was it was all done in real time. So for 22 minutes which is how long a half an hour show was at that point.
1: Should have called it 22.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. (laughs) Get mad at me. (laughs) I had nothing to do with it. Um, Yeah, it just follows for 22 minutes. It follows her. Mm -hmm. You watch Ellie. You just watch her go in real time through her life. And uh, it was incredibly complicated to write, to write something in real time. Um, And it it was an experiment. It was interesting.
2: Uh
1: how were you able to juggle that with your daily show schedule though?
3: They they let me go for a couple of months and do that. Yeah. I think they do that I'd be <laughs> be back pretty soon. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But they were always really cool about yeah. that. They um I mean even when I left at the left left, they said if you ever want to come back, you know, doors open. So so that felt good. And I've tended to do that throughout my career um is to kind of leave uh maybe on the mm-hmm. early side. Um before, things, before I became complacent, because I loved The Daily Show, and Nancy worked there too, and um, I had a lot of really good friends there, but I just felt it's time, and I didn't have anything to go to, um, but I just figured it was time, and the same with The Office, I didn't have anything specifically to, to go to, but I thought, well, seven seasons, that feels right for this character, and uh, I figure I should move on. Yeah,
1: I think the, cons- the people think that you left The Daily Show to do The Office, but it actually wasn't set up yet, no, was it?
3: No, no, not at all. No, I, I just came out, <clears throat> came out here and uh, didn't really have anything to do. So. Uh,
1: I actually want to touch on a couple movies you did before The Office, because obviously you made a big splash in 2003 with uh, Bruce Almighty. Um, I almost said Evan Almighty, I always get them confused. Uh, Where you did The Impossible, you stole scenes from Jim Carrey. Um, but again, you're playing an Anchorman.
3: Right. I'm starting to notice a theme here. I almost didn't get it because of that. You're kidding. Yeah. Um, because they thought, well, you know, he's done. Well, I almost, I almost didn't get, because uh, again, in, uh, in Anchorman... I play another news guy, and I almost didn't get that because I'd already played in Bruce Almighty and on The Daily Show. Um, So it had become sort of a a theme for me.
1: Did you explain how many waiters you've played and how well that worked out? I tried. (laughs) Uh, You also worked with Woody Allen. Yeah. In Melinda and Melinda. I've never seen it. You've never seen it. I actually just watched it like three weeks ago. How was I? (laughs) (laughs) You were great, but what I, because Chuantel led you for has
3: a huge role in it before he did 12 Years a Slave. There's I didn't like... even know that. <laughs> that wouldn't... was the most frightening experience of my life. I had gone from Anchorman, which was really the first... That was really the first movie that I was in. I mean, Bruce Almighty had a couple scenes, but I was sort of in all the way. I didn't really say anything, but I was there for the run of the, the show for Anchorman. And I went right from that to... Doing this Woody Allen movie, and I was petrified. He, t- can I tell you my Woody Allen story? There's a scene. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I like There's that you scene- have permission.
3: That's so nice. There's a scene um, where Will, Fer- Will Ferrell and I are playing basketball and talking about his life and his problems, you know, with his the the women in his life, and it they wanted to. Woody Allen wanted to do, I feel like I can't say Woody because yes! so pretentious. Mr. Allen wanted to sh- first shoot it as a wonner, And then he said, you know what, then we'll go in and do coverage. And so it was a basketball scene. We're out, we're, we're shooting hoops. And then we walk around and we sit down on a park bench and continue the scene. And it's probably a five or six minute scene. It, it's, it's a, it was a long scene. And so he said, don't worry about getting it right. Don't worry about being you know, word perfect because uh, we'll go in and cover it. So we we rehearsed it and then we shot it and we, we were on the park bench after we finished. He yelled cut and he came over and said, you guys good? Sure, lunch. One, take. Wow. And it was like, he, he didn't plan on covering it at all. <laughs> he just wanted to make us, uh, he didn't want us to be afraid of... Oh, we're gonna do a oneer for Woody Allen. Mm-hmm. Um which I thought was really smart. Took all of that pressure off, like, oh good, they'll get in and they'll you know, I don't have to get these lines perfectly. And he was happy with that one it's not a hysterical story, but I thought it was like, <laughs> No, it's
2: amazing.
1: <laughs> and was did you shoot that after Anchorman? Yeah. So the dynamic between you and Will, I mean, was it hard to
3: not, you know, blurt out Well, I think <laughs> no, I th- well I think they liked the fact that we were friends yeah. in real life and that we had a, you know we had a chemistry with one another. So I think that was part of it.
1: And on Anchorman, I would love to see, um I mean, I know there's obviously um, extended cuts and such, but the lines that didn't make it over, I once ate a big red candle.
3: Yeah. Like, was that always the only line or did you? I There have to be 20 different, <laughs> I, I ate insulation, I pooped a squirrel, you know, there were, <laughs> it. The, it, it would just go on for hours, yeah. and when you go from that to Woody Allen, it is mind boggling because right. you don't you don't poop a squirrel for Woody Allen. It's a <laughs>
2: it
3: is very it's a very different temperament yeah. on that set and a very different mood. Um, but yeah, there. I mean, for all of those, you know, for the second one too, there are hours and hours. They cut a second that Anchorman too. They cut an entirely separate movie with with all different jokes. Um, the same story, but all different. Every joke is a different one. And there were five, six, ten alts to every one. It's, it was absurd.
1: Now, was it on Anchorman? Had you met Judd Apatow
3: before? Um, no. Uh, Anchorman was the first time I met him. And I, At the end of it, he said, if you have any ideas for movies, you know, let's get together sometime. So a few months later, I went in and I pitched an idea that I'd had. Um, we talked about it and he liked it a lot and we uh spoke for probably an hour and a half and he you know said well let's you know let's continue let's think about it and just before i left i said oh there was this other thing and it was 40 year old virgin i said it's a guy who cuz there's a sketch that i tried to improvise at second city that was that was basically this guy it was the the poker scene in 40 year old virgin of this guy who's playing poker with some buddies and they all start regaling each other with these sex stories and he tries to enter the conversation but he has no frame of reference and so he's saying things like oh you know when you feel a woman's breasts and it feels like a like you know like a bag of sand and, and all the other guys are going like what what are you talking about well you know kind of like a bag of sand I don't know some some, you know what I'm saying and he tries to just get by and they finally call him out on it so I pitched that to Judd that scene I said I think to have this guy who hasn't, who's, who's my age but hasn't experienced that, but he's not a weirdo. He just, it just passed him by. Yeah. And he said, I can sell that tomorrow to Universal. And he essentially did. He, he was shooting a movie with Will and over the monitor during a take, he mentioned it to Mary Parent and she said, I'll buy that. And so they, it was so fast. Um, they signed us up to write it. We wrote it over the summer. We turned it in on a Friday, and they greenlit it on Monday. It oh. was like, I know, I know. It was <laughs> crazy. But, but the bad part is you start thinking, oh, this is how it happened. <laughs> <laughs> Never again. <laughs> um, so, and yeah, all that said, that
1: didn't they try to shut you down at one point?
3: They did. <laughs>
1: they did. After the
3: first, I didn't know you knew that. After the, <laughs> they did the first week. They were getting dailies, and it was mostly me creepily riding a bike and me creepily walking down the street looking, looking at posters of women with big boobs, and it was, it, it, they were like right in the middle of a day we got a call, they said, Judd came in and said, uh, we're, we're going to close down, we're going to shut down today, and you and I have to go to Universal and so we drove over that day and all the executives were there shaking their heads like what he looks like a serial killer what is this movie this isn't funny this is like really dark and is who's he gonna kill Um, and they did not see it at all and uh and so so we kind of talked our way out of it and said these are i mean these are establishing shots there was no scene work that had been done yet." you know, me peeing on a wall. What's going on? This is not funny. Um, and and we sort of, you know, pulled our way out of it. But they didn't have a lot of faith in it um, until the first preview. I remember, and I had actually heard this like a couple of months ago, somebody like some, some insider told me that they had spoken to an executive who said, oh, yeah, that, that's we're going to bury that movie. Like before it came out, be, oh yeah, that thing that's going to be nothing. We're just going to bury it somewhere. And then then we went to the first test screening and it rocked. I mean, it really played well. And you could see the the universal execs at the back going, "Oh, there my dollar sign." So it changed. Yeah. I mean, and and it obvious but they they didn't know. I mean, to their credit, Mm -hmm. they signed us on to do it, and they hired Judd, who really didn't have any directorial experience, and I was nobody. So, I mean, I do give them a lot of credit for taking a chance.
1: Well, it's also such a testament to the movie, because you hear the concept, or you just even hear the title, and you kind of think you know what you're in for, and then there's this sweet... You know, funny and sometimes dark, but, like,
3: really good-hearted movie. It was raunchy and good-hearted, yeah. I think. Yeah. But it's funny. Like, the title, I remember going back after I'd shot it. It hadn't come out yet. I went back to a high school reunion. And what are you up to, Steve? Well, I just shot a movie called The 40-Year-Old Virgin. And I could see eyes rolling back in their heads. Like, poor guy. <laughs> that is so sad what happened to his career. Um, because, yeah, the, the title does seem... Yeah. Titles are weird. Titles are tricky. I never wanted to call Crazy Stupid Love Crazy Stupid I Love. I love that title. I hate that title. Oh. I it ju- I don't I hate it because I feel like it limited the appeal, like right out of the blocks. Because are are a bunch of college dudes gonna go seven tickets to crazy stupid love? <laughs> no, not really. I mean it's I mean unfortunately it is I think it does it does limit and we went around and around and around in terms of titles for that, that movie. What but, were some of the ones you rejected? Oh, there are literally thousands. Go Big or Go Home, which is one of my least favorites. <laughs> um, uh, the, uh, oh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> the, the Wingman was one of them, Ooh. which I thought, it, le- it was bland, but it might have had a, a more general appeal, mm-hmm. but... Anyway. I love that title, Crazy Stupid Love. I I hate to ruin it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to ditch
1: my DVD now. Um, Of course we have to talk about The Office. You spent seven seasons playing
3: Michael Scott. I hope I'm not being too boring. Yeah. God, you guys are like spending your Sunday night. Like,
1: wow, (laughs) so nice. They could be at like another screening of The Imitation Game. They're very happy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, no offense to The Imitation Game, but not a lot of laughs. Um, So for this role, you had you earned six Golden Globe nominations, one win, six Emmy nominations, and 12 SAG nominations. Mm -hmm. Uh, And more importantly, you. Seared the catchphrase, that's what she said, into all our minds. Um, You are responsible for that. Uh,
3: Were you a fan of the original British series? I never saw it.
1: Really? Yeah.
3: And I still haven't. And I always said I would after the show ended, but then I didn't. (laughs) um, But I just thought, I, I got the call to audition, and I remember Paul Rudd telling me, this show is awesome. You know, it's, you have to see it. And I remember watching probably five minutes of it and watching Ricky and thinking, if I watch another second, I'm going to be doing an impersonation of him Mm. for my audition. And I can't, that's not, that's not what it's, it it can't be that. It has to be a, it has to be a different version of that template. Um, And that's the only way I thought it would be successful. And, uh, and so that... It it wasn't, you know, it wasn't out of anything, but that I just wanted to avoid any sort of imitation.
1: Was it? Did you audition only for Michael? Yeah. Or okay, because I know a lot. Like I know, like Rain Wilson auditioned for Michael Mm -hmm. and Dwight. Yeah. Um, And what? How long was the audition
3: process? Um, Boy, I I went a few times. I think I went probably twice. I met with Greg Daniels and we sat and just talked for a while, and uh, and then I remember reading with Rain. Uh, And a couple of other people, but I kind of knew Rain, Rain was going to be the guy for sure. And then the callback was like this, the network audition was the coolest network audition ever, because there were no network executives anywhere to be seen. They had a camera, and Ken Kwapis, who's the director, and you, and the person reading. And it was, or, or the other actors, you know. And it was just like a work session that they were taping. But what I didn't know is that it was like closed-circuit TV. In another room, there were 20 network execs, you know, scrutinizing everything. But it just felt like a work session. And it was playful and fun and funny and uh, just had a chance to kind of loosen up and and fool around with it and get a sense of what what the character... It's hard, you know, trying to start something from scratch and figuring, well, where is this going to start? And the trajectory of you know you can't show everything in the first episode or the first six episodes. So like how much are you gonna limit yourself to and it was challenging.
1: Oh uh, one of the things that you achieved with that show that has also sort of been a recurring theme in a lot of your work is this fantastic ensemble. Yeah. Uh, I mean just just flawless from top to bottom.
3: Was that chemistry pretty instant or did it sort of build as the show went No, on? it was pretty instant. It it was and I think that's, I think you can attribute that to Greg. He, he just knew the right people to, to cast with one another. He knew, he knew that we would get along. Um, I don't know. He just had a really good sense of personality and, and how it would all unfold, I think. Or he just got lucky. But um, that was a great group of people. And we were very, very tight. That was hard to leave. Um, because, they were, you know, that was a family. That was a mm-hmm. really special time.
1: Do you, um, Michael uh, elicits such strong reactions out of people that sometimes, <laughs> yeah. sometimes you, he does really sweet things, and other times he's just terrible.
3: Yeah.
1: Um, did you ever worry that he went too far, or, or did you like the guy?
3: hmm Yeah. I mean, I, too far? No. I think I always was conscious of... It's hard. It's, it's hard, especially when writers uh, sort of graduate from a show and go off and do other shows. So the kind of the writers that you started with and the, the tone that you started with can change over time when you have different writers and we have different showrunners and things you, you want to kind of hold on to what you originated. And so I think that was the challenge, trying to kind of stay true to those characters and to, um, and to have the writers... Because sometimes writers would start as fans of the show. And they would write scripts as if they were a fan of the show as opposed to a writer of the show because they're, they're different things. And you don't want to see Michael say that's what she said five times a show. It's Maybe you yeah. don't. But. but you know what I mean? It's like it, it can be too much of yeah. a good thing and you have to select your moments and you have to... And you can't also write something for a character just to elicit a laugh. It has to be within the parameters of what, you know, of what makes up that character. And so it, it was, a, I think, a learning process uh, for everybody. And, it, and it, I think as a show goes on, it, it becomes harder to maintain that.
1: By the way, you mentioned you saw Chris Rock today. I did. Has he ever seen your imitation of him from the I show? I don't know.
3: <laughs> We've never talked about it.
1: <laughs> I should say Michael's imitation
3: right, of him. Right, right, right. It's
1: a terrible imitation. <laughs> uh, I have a question from Rhoda over there uh, wants to know what's your favorite episode of The Office and why
3: hmm. um, boy uh, there's an episode called Benihana Christmas oh my god sorry where Michael <laughs> my, they pick up two um, women from this restaurant from this Asian restaurant and Michael can't tell them apart
2: <laughs>
3: so, so he uses a sharpie and he does yeah. that on the unbeknownst to them he marks one of them so he can and it, it's the grossest thing um and harold Ramos directed that episode and i was a huge fan of his and he it, what a sweet guy and we just and he fell into that that world he directed a few episodes and was one of those one of those people that immediately fit in and everybody loved and got it and and understood all of the the chemistry and the the tone and the the pacing of it. There, Amy um, Adams, the first she actually replaced somebody.
0: Really? She was not.
3: They cast another woman, and, and this rarely happened. Um, but after one day, they had to let this other actress go, and they brought in Amy Adams on Tuesday. And talk about like, and I'd never met her before, and I thought she is going places. And uh, because she she was one of those, because that looking, that camera awareness, that being able to look to the camera um, was a really specific uh, ability that it was especially hard for people who had not done the show. But she had it immediately, that, that she had the awareness, but she played it with such subtlety. She was fantastic. There were certain... We had a lot of good, I mean, Amy Ryan came in and she was fantastic as well. We had a lot of great people that came in.
1: Except she was your sister in Dan in Real Life. Did that creep you out? out Yeah, Yeah. a little bit. (laughs) Um, After the success of The 40-Year-Old Virgin, I'm going to imagine every broad, raunchy comedy came your way. Uh, Or maybe not. But you chose to do a small independent film, Little Miss Sunshine, um, a supporting role, no less. And I know a lot of actors... I had trouble moving from comedy to drama, but it, it seemed to go pretty smoothly for you.
3: That was a good year. That was that was a fun. <laughs> Understatement. I one of one of the uh, the producers from uh, Anchorman advised me not to do Little Miss Sunshine. Really? She read it. She said, "There's you don't have enough to do. You don't have any lines." Like, are you kidding? I mean, I'll just. I'll sit in the back of the van with Alan Arkin for six weeks. That's come on. Like who wouldn't want to do that? Um, no, that was again like this ensemble mm-hmm. of people that, and I've stayed close with all those people as well. Just, just you know, just comple- completely generous, and that's those are the. That's where I feel most safe is when, I'm surrounded by people who. Just care about making everybody else good in the movie and and that's one of the things we learned at second city too like in the improv part of it is that your job is to make everybody else good you know you're and if they're doing the same thing you know everybody's set and to to feel that kind of support and on the office same same thing i i love I love the ensemble aspect of this
1: another theme I'm noticing is that you do these things that completely exceed people's expectations. Oh, yes, I I do. All the time.
3: No, I know exactly what you're talking about. No, 40-year-old virgin.
1: 40 year old virgin you said they tried to bury or they thought they were going to bury it became this you know global hit Mm -hmm. little miss sunshine was i mean i think it was made for like 12 million dollars
3: yeah or less you know yeah
1: went on to win an academy award you guys won the thank you sag ensemble award yeah i mean yeah that was huge did you have any idea it was gonna
3: explode no even when we saw it we i remember we all (laughs) went to a screening of it in a, a, a screening room over here and and we all walked away thinking, that was cute, that was good, that was, no idea. And then we went to uh, Sundance, and it got this great reception, and I, we were all all so surprised and blown away. Um, but yeah, it struck a chord somehow. People, people liked it. Those are great directors too, yeah. John and Valerie.
1: And from what I understand, they didn't make you audition. They, they knew you could play this role.
3: Um. I met with them at Jerry's Deli, and we sat and talked about it, and that was that was it. It was one of those scripts that you read and you think, "This is, don't change a word of it." And everybody felt the same way, and I don't think a word was changed. It was, there was no that one had no improvising. That was just, I mean, it 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 was. I thought it was so spare and um, so specific. All the characters they didn't say very much, but everybody knew who these people were uh, very specifically.
1: Uh, I want to touch actually on um, your voiceover work because obviously you've done uh, characters in movies like Over the Hedge and Despicable Me. Uh, You've created another indelible character. Is it harder than you expected?
3: No, it's way easier. Is it? Yeah. It's <laughs> Finally, someone admits kind it. Kind <laughs> of great. I mean, come on. You go into a room. I'm the guy. Here I am. You know, and you do that for a few hours. And, you know, it's great at kids' parties. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Um, no, it's just, it's fun. It's 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 so It's so freeing to, and, you know, I'm sure you hear this type of thing all the time that when, when you're limited sometimes as an actor, it can be the, the most freeing thing as well. If you can only use this, it forces you to use all of this thing that you can. And if it's just the voice, you, you can feel free to go crazy with it and try all the different permutations of a voice. Um, and I think it's a great exercise as well for an actor because, you know, they're not seeing you and it 's really for the animators too, because now it's in their hands it's their imagination, and you 're just giving them tools to work with and again, I think it 's an ensemble that way because when i 'm doing it i 'm thinking i 'm going to give these guys and women a hundred options uh, on every line, and they can do with it what they want, and they can you know and it, in terms of in terms of volume in terms of of over the topness in terms of the you know the rhythms just because i don't know how it's all going to fit together and because you never get to do any dialogue with anybody else too really so you you never hear anybody else's voice it's all just your stuff so it's it's kind of cool because it's a it's like a jigsaw puzzle and you're just trying to figure out your piece of it um but it's exciting and and again it's i'm thinking what are they going to need and i want to give them every option that they could possibly want or or hope for. And and I'm also gonna improvise a bunch of stuff that if they want to use it, great. Um, but I'm just gonna give them options that way as well too.
1: And where did you find the voice for Gru? Was it was it a character you did before, a discussion with the director?
3: No, we just we went into a we went into a session and we just started playing around. I just I wanted to be kind of a nondescript Eastern European thing. <laughs> it's, and not and just and seem silly and a tiny bit ominous because I I really, and we actually, I, I have to say, those guys too were, were so um, great about my, my input um, just in terms of character design, because they had this design, the initial character was very angular and dark and thin and had this long chin and these brooding eyes and he was scary as hell. <laughs> and so they, they said, you know what, too scary. Um, so they made him into kind of a, a roly poly, lovable, and I said, "Now you've gone." I thought too far the other way. There has to be somewhere in between. He, there has to be kids. Kids like a little bit of edge, um, and I don't. I think that has to be appreciated. Kids, you have to give them credit that sometimes kids like stuff that's just a tiny bit dark, yeah. and they will get into it. So it was. So they thought about that and they came up with the. The look for grew that was comic, but at the same time, there was something, uh, there was something dark about yeah. it. It's um, kinda yeah, it's kind of
1: Edward Gorey-ish.
3: Yeah, yeah. Those—they're really smart, and I'm telling you, the minions—that is a marketing genius, genius. stroke. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> Come on. I hope you get a cut of that. Oh yeah, right.
1: <laughs> no. No, I'm... By Stock and the Minions. No, they're, <laughs> they they did a good job. Uh, sort of related to voiceover, uh, Vinny Donadio, did I get that right? Um, does the difference in energy between the ADR stage and the set make looping more difficult for you?
3: The difference in ADR stage to the set? Um, sometimes it's an, uh, an opportunity to improve upon what you did, because sometimes you go into an ADR stage and you listen to it and go, oh, no, no, that's... <laughs> That, that just, that's not what I was hoping it would be. Um, but generally, it's better on the day. I mean, generally, whatever happened that was organic to that scene or, or what was going on between actors, um, I know who's really good at ADR is Alan Arkin. He is renowned as being one of the best. He can, he can loop something perfectly, you know, those, as the beeps, beep you in, one one time he it's like because he's he's a musician and i think so much of it is musical too to hear how the line plays um he has a really really good ear for it um but it's fun the weirdest part is when is when you're dubbing it for airline use and you're (laughs) you're you're dubbing some swear like whatever some swear and you're God gosh darn it and it's it always sticks out. I know Adam McKay tried to do a whole movie by putting in really silly like not even trying to match like you you cow takers <laughs> things that had nothing to do and the and Paramount or whoever said no 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 they saw a cut they're like no 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 you can't mock that you can't you can't mock the gratuitous language in it. No <laughs>
1: Uh, I have a question from Philip, because I want to make sure I get to Foxcatcher, and I have all these movies I have to tear through, so I'll let Philip ask the question for me, which was, what was your experience like
3: working with Meryl Streep and Tommy Lee Jones? Oh, my God. I was (laughs) petrified, because it was these long scenes in Hope Springs, and I was playing this uh, therapist, and I had to drive these scenes. It was mostly my character driving through and asking them questions, and... Um, kind of setting the tone of it and setting the rhythms of it. And, um, and Tommy Lee Jones is a, is a very intimidating person to begin with. Yeah. You, know, you don't, you, you should know your lines. for sure. <laughs> um, but he was really nice. I mean, he was very, very kind to me. And she is an absolute, I mean, I'm sure everyone said the same thing. She's just a remarkable gem of a person as well as being, you know, the best actor ever. Um, but I'd watch her too, and it was hard. The most difficult part of it was not becoming an audience member in those scenes mm. because you watch her and you think, oh my God, look what she's doing. <laughs> so cool. Like she, I remember one, this is between takes. She just started, she did this. She went like, and she went through this thing that she was going to do during the next take. And I was watching her like, what is she, go? where is she going? <laughs> and then she did this, she did this thing. It was, they were talking about this, this ill-fated encounter they had in a movie theater where they were going to try to do something kind of frisky. Mm-hmm. And it was the funniest improv I've ever seen. And again, she's a great improviser because everything she improvises is completely within character. She's not going for a laugh. It's all, it's all on point and uh, on, in character, on story. Um, I don't need to talk about Meryl Streep, but <laughs> she's, it, was, it was remarkable and, and scary. It was frightening, but exhilarating um, to work with people like that. I really like performance. Oh, yeah. thanks. Yeah, thanks.
1: Uh, one movie I just have to uh, bring up because it's a personal favorite is the incredible Burt Wonderstone. Um,
3: <laughs> you and three others. And there are... <laughs>
1: Well, having dated a lot of magicians, having gone through a magician phase, it's You dated
3: a lot of magicians? A lot. How? (laughs) That is the oddest. You need to write a book.
1: (laughs) No one would believe it, honestly. No, there's, there's, yeah. And then you realize, there's actually, I think, an episode of News Radio where she realized it wasn't really magic and it, like, Killed it for her, and there's there's some truth to that. Um, and I believe David Cross played the magician. Oh, really? In question. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, I, I see this movie, and I am shocked that nobody has thought to do a movie like this
3: before. Yeah, I, it didn't really play. It didn't. It just didn't. <laughs> it it did was in my house. <laughs> well, it was one of, you know, you take a shot. You think, yeah. oh, that could be funny. You know, this down-on-his-luck guy, and he's sort of pompous, and... You know, you never know. You 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 take a shot. I remember, <laughs> I remember. I brought a, an early cut home to uh, to Boston, and I showed it to some extended family. I showed it to Nancy's family, and you could have heard a pin drop. Like, and I thought, oh my God, we are in trouble. Really? And you know, it's you you try. You know, you give it a shot. I think you know Steve Buscemi and and James Gandolfini. I mean, there were. There were some great great people in that and and it was you know it was fun and you were a producer on that I was, as well yeah. Yeah. um and
1: so were you involved top to bottom casting script
3: yeah yeah, yeah. you know you take a shot <laughs> <laughs> you never know you never know you, you honestly never know how something's going to turn out and you just you try you do your best but they don't always they don't yeah they don't always come out the way you would hope that they would come out or are received you know
1: And you were also a producer on Crazy Stupid Love. Yeah. Same thing? Were you you involved in the casting process? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I love that title. I'm sorry. I'm just going to keep saying (laughs) it. No, it's fine. It's
3: it's fine. I remember... I remember it was weird. That was another one, weird casting. Like, I met Ryan Gosling. Mm -hmm. And and I thought, yeah, sure. I didn't really know him very well. But I met him and I thought, this is a great, great guy. And we probably talked for three hours. And he... um, I am such a huge Ryan Gosling fan i He is honestly he's one of the nicest here's my Ryan Gosling story. It was Friday we we're we were rapping for the night, and I you know we we're talking what are you know what are you doing? I'm hanging out with my wife and kids and soccer games and stuff. What are you doing? Oh, my band has a gig oh where where are you where are you gonna where are you gonna have a gig? He said we're playing a, a nursing home in Glendale. I'm like, damn it, you're a nice guy. you're like. <laughs> But it wasn't, like, for anybody to know about. It wasn't to be publicized. He said, yeah, they really, you know, these seniors really enjoy it and we love it. And I'm like, man, he's just a good dude. He's a really really soulful, good person.
1: Um, And something that I don't think a lot
3: of people knew before that movie, he's really funny. He is really funny. He has great timing. And he was nervous the first day. He was nervous about... That, like, I'm in a comedy, I, I feel like I have to be funny. But, um, no, I think he's, he's great. I think he'd do anything. So that brings us to Foxcatcher.
1: <laughs> um, uh, it's such a fantastic performance, such a great movie. Uh, do you remember the story of John DuPont? And vaguely. The Schultz brothers? Yeah, when it I mean,
3: when it was, when it was first uh, talked about uh, to me, I, I vaguely remembered it, but I didn't know all of the ins and outs of the story.
1: Mm-hmm. And so how did you become
3: aware of the film and and what drew you to the role of Dupont? My agent submitted me to Bennett Miller and I don't think I was on any list that Bennett Miller had uh to play Dupont and uh I guess it he it gave him pause he thought about it and um called sent me the script and called me in and we had lunch and and talked about it and then the next day uh I was offered the part. So it it was it it was sort of out of the blue and it I didn't it wasn't anything that I was positioning myself for. I didn't, I didn't look at a breakdown and think, ah, John DuPont, that's, that has me written all over it. Um, but I was happy to be called in. But I also didn't, I didn't go in thinking, um, I have to impress upon Bennett Miller that I'm the right person to play this. I, w- I just really wanted to have a discussion with him about the character, about all of these, you know, about this triangle uh, of a relationship. And it was intriguing to me, it was a fascinating, story. And the more I researched, um, the more fascinating it became and the more textured and, uh, and, and horrifying really Mm -hmm. the the whole story became to me.
1: Um, have you played a real person before?
3: Just myself. (laughs) Uh, no, I never have. No. And that was different too, to, to have footage on a person and to be able to study someone because usually a character is out of your imagination or based on whatever script, uh and and stage directions and and to to look at a person and think oh that that guy has a very specific way of talking and moving and looking and uh and when we're going to start with that and I'll emulate that and and try to capture some of that essence in the performance it's an it's a kind of a spooky thing mm-hmm. and scary it was it was scary for me i won't lie it was um it was intimidating to work with someone like Bennett and i didn't know what to expect with him at all i thought this this guy is he is he is dark and weird and, and i i mean i cuz i didn't know you know you don't you meet someone and it, and based on his his previous movies which i thought were great but he is so um so heady and mm. and 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 deep and but but he we've become really good friends he's a really funny guy and he is a great collaborator and all of these ideas that I, uh, expectations that I had were completely pushed to the side. Um, and it was, but, it, but still, it was, it, was, it was scary and, uh, and daunting to, to try.
1: Uh, and I know Bennett said that the physical mimicry wasn't, you know, a priority for him, and mm-hmm. yet he said you nailed DuPont's gestures, I mean, the look, the movements. How did you set about achieving that?
3: I just watched, I, I got a lot of f- footage on him, and he, he had a documentary commissioned about himself and about Foxcatcher. The one that's in the movie. Right. Yeah. And actually that uh, documentarian is the original documentarian. It's the real guy that interviewed DuPont and the Schultz brothers and the other wrestlers there. And on the day of shooting, he had his original handwritten cards from the first time from the real time that he interviewed all of these people um so there were you know there was footage on him the most interesting part where i got to see raw footage of the documentary that um you know they didn't put in the documentary so it was a more of a behind the scenes him talking to the documentarian and him instructing the crew on how to set lights and that was that gave a little mm-hmm. glimpse too because uh, it was a different guy the guy that was projecting himself on camera was a different person than the one off camera.
1: And what was it like on set? Because I know you had to hilarious. show hilarious. Yeah, it's a
2: laugh riot. It was.
3: <laughs> it was that that into Anchorman too. Very little difference. Um, it was. It was as you would expect. It was really dark. Mm-hmm. It was plus the fact that um, Nancy Schultz came and visited the set a few times, oh, wow. and Mark Schultz was there quite a bit of the time and I think out of respect for them and, uh, and just out of respect for their generosity for being there and supporting it and for availing themselves to it um I think you know we all felt felt that mm-hmm. way as well and you know it's weird talking about because these are real people, and this is a, a true story, and you don't want to be cavalier about it and you know, and it's nice to hear how pe- how people responded to the film. But also, it's like you don't... It's it's strange taking credit in any way because this is somebody else's life that's being depicted. It's strange.
1: And I'm sure it was very isolating because, first of all, you're in, like, three hours of makeup yeah. a day. Yeah. Um, and then by the time everyone else gets there, you're probably in a completely different mindset.
3: Yeah, it was... Yeah, by the time everybody got in, I was sort of already in that look. And, uh, and then it would take me an hour to, to get out of it, so they were all gone by the time. No one, I, I've, I was rarely seen uh, as myself. I mean, most, say 98% of my time there was um, in that character.
1: Uh, I know Channing said he didn't think he really met you until the Cannes Film Festival yeah. when the movie premiered. It's true. I mean, were you felt in-
3: the same way. intentionally staying in character or was it just sort of a byproduct? It was sort of a byproduct. I, think, I don't think any of us thought we're going, to, we're going to go to Pittsburgh and not talk to each other <laughs> um, aside from uh, in character. But it just kind of happened that way. You know, I was in this look. Mike, The guy who drove me from the hotel to set did not talk to me when i had that stuff on he he and that was my first indication that it was affecting other people around me um and channing and i just naturally and mark too we just sort of stayed clear of one another a little bit it wasn't i mean we were we were cordial but we didn't want to become buddies because that did not reflect the relationship in the movie at all um so to i think we we both we all felt to have that a little bit of tension and uh, uh, and and unease because I think the movie has that from the mm. beginning. There is definite uh, unease to it.
1: There, Like the whole movie has this impending sense of dread yeah. that is uncomfortable in the best it's way. It's a Christmas film. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> good family entertainment. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
3: no, I agree. I mean, I, I felt the same way when I first saw it. It, it it, yeah, it has a it has a mood to it. It's a it's a very atmospheric movie.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And <laughs> I sort of asked this about Michael Scott, but I mean, what was sort of your take on Dupont? Because I know a lot of people dismiss it as you know he was crazy or he was creepy. And my, in a weird way, my heart actually kind of breaks
3: for him. Me too. I I think he was sick. I think beyond everything else that's that's written and said about him, I think he was ill. And. And part of what is so tragic to me about him is that he was isolated, isolated by his wealth. So he didn't have anybody around him. He didn't have any friends, true friends, that were going to step up and have an intervention for him if they saw red flags. There was no one in his circle that would do that because essentially they were all employees. And in that way they were all complicit in his illness. And that's incredibly sad when somebody, who I think really did need help mm-hmm. and, and needed someone to intervene, didn't have, didn't have that person in his life.
1: Were you able to let
3: him go at the end of a day? Or, or did he sort of? I, that one kind of stayed, stayed around for a while. Um, and I don't want to sound pretentious about it, but that was, I mean, I still think about it um, and, and about the experience and about him as a, a person. Um,
1: would you say this was your most difficult role to date?
3: Yeah. yeah. That and Get Smart.
1: (laughs) 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 Thank you for bringing us out of that. Uh, I actually, I heard a great story about Get Smart. You went in for a meeting, and you
3: thought it was an audition? I did, yeah. (laughs) I went in, and I had my little satchel with my headshot. (laughs) And they said, they want you to go to Warner Brothers to... uh, to audition for Get Smart. I, I at least I heard the word audition. I remember going into a conference room and here are all these executives and the president like, wow, the president of Warner Brothers and an audition? This is weird. Yeah. And uh and I I literally had my hand in my satchel like <laughs> with my head shot Steve Carell. Hey. And, <laughs> and, and I I was about to say do, do you, anybody have sides? And and Jeff Robinoff, I remember he said, so, we want you to play Maxwell Smart. And my head just went, it was, It was the first time that I didn't audition for anything. Really? And I was like, what's happening? <laughs> that, it was, I want, yeah, I just walked out on like this, yeah, of course, got on the phone and Nancy, oh my God. <laughs> you would never believe what just happened. So, yeah.
1: That um, story does not surprise me because everybody says you're the nicest person in Hollywood um, and surprised and humbled by your own success. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I, I am curious, I mean, how do you sort of keep your head in an industry that uh, isn't, isn't known
3: for it? Well, I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I None of this, I mean, none of this weird big time stuff happened until I was in my forties. So I kind of think I was a fully formed person by that point. And, and I have a family and I have you know, two little kids and a great wife. So that was my life and that is my life. So, so all of this has been really astounding and I'm so grateful for it. But, um, but I think I, I, just, I was who I was and, and am at that point but bless you um
2: so it wasn't
3: yeah you see (laughs) you see i'm a human being they're just like us see that's the weird thing like to say someone's nice is like shouldn't everybody just be but you know what i mean it's like that shouldn't set anyone apart (laughs) i don't i don't know I don't wear that. Like, yeah, I'm one of the good ones. Just like <laughs> that should be expected behavior, I think. So, um,
1: uh, anyway. Speaking of uh, one of the good ones, I know you just did another movie with Julianne Moore. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Freeheld. Um, she plays a. Uh, she takes such risks with. She's great. I I. Um, I I feted her last night. Um, Was it last night? Last night. Oh my god. I know. At Palm Springs, <laughs> it feels and like it's so easy to say nice things about someone you genuinely love and admire. And she's one of those people. Um, she's in this. She she stars in this movie with Ellen Page, and they're a couple. And it's about domestic partnership, and it's a true story about the this couple living in New Jersey, um, and and how uh, her character gets cancer. And is dying, and they are not going to give uh, her partner her benefit. So it's, it's a, it's a very tragic but you know uplifting story. I play this crazy attorney that uh, comes to their aid, um, and it's it was quick, you know, just like just a week. But it was from, from my part, but just nice to work with her again. And what else is up next that
1: you can tell us about?
3: Um, well, I had a movie booted. <laughs> because of this a movie i was supposed to do with gore Bravinsky, um called pyongyang and uh and that was that was uh the plug was pulled on that a couple of weeks ago really interesting story um and we were we were set to shoot in serbia in Mm. like a month and a half um we'll see you know you never know maybe someday
1: could you shoot it in toronto
3: (laughs) toronto doesn't look like north korea no No, they had to find some place that looked like you know Cold War era, Mm -hmm. um, and so Serbia fit the bill for that. Um, So we'll see. So what I'm
1: hearing is there's a break in your schedule. Mm -hmm. So if anyone has any scripts, just kidding, (laughs) just kidding, sorry.
3: Um, Just stick them under my windshield.
1: (laughs) But I've heard rumors that there might be a Get Smart too, or is that just... Really? Oh no, really? I have not heard that rumor.
3: Re- uh, really? Yeah. No, I no, that's... No, it's
1: on IMDB, which I know means nothing, but I got my hopes up. What? Out. Yeah. S-
3: something inaccurate on IMDB? <laughs>
1: right? It also says you own a giraffe farm, so...
3: A what? A giraffe farm. A giraffe farm? It's actually Wiki- Wikipedia. That one is true. <laughs> no, I own a general store, but I, I don't own a giraffe... You really
1: do? A general store, See, this yeah. is the one I didn't believe.
3: Yeah. You'd believe giraffe farm over general store? <laughs> No, I own a, um, my wife and I bought a general st- like a 150-year-old general store um, in our hometown, Massachusetts.
1: You're kidding. No. Oh,
3: that's fantastic. No, it's cool. It's my sister-in-law runs it, and we sell penny candy and coffee and muffins, oh. and it's, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's very cool, and I just, you know, and it will never make a dime, but it was one of, it's one of those things, because I, there was one not too far from where I grew up in Massachusetts that closed, um, when I was still a kid, but it was a gathering place, you know, yeah. and they aren't, there, there aren't many of them. Mm-hmm. And I figured I'm just going to buy it. And my brother's an architect. So we shored the place up and make, made sure that it wasn't going to fall down anytime mm-hmm. soon. And, um, and people use it, you know, that whole neighborhood really congregates there. Yeah. It's cool. I mean, it's, it's just nice. It's nice to walk in and feel people enjoying it, sitting out on the porch. It's very hometowny it's, it's, pretty, it's, it's neat.
1: Do you ever get behind the counter and like come
3: out and serve people and no. surprise you? No. <laughs> no, but I go down a lot. Yeah. I, I hang out there. and um, Yeah, it's fun. It's just fun.
1: Well, with your free time, maybe you can uh, hop behind the counter for sure. a few days. Sure. Yeah. Um, but whatever it is you do next, I look forward so much to seeing oh, it. Oh, thanks. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks. thanks Thank you for guys. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the SAG-AFTRA Foundation's Conversations Podcast. If you appreciated what you heard, please support us with a review or donation and reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at sag After Found. We'd love to hear from you.